Hey everybody, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. This is Tommy. So excited today to share with you a conversation Becca and I had with Andre Henry. Just wanted to let you know before we begin that we recorded this conversation back in April. And in between that time, we experienced uh, more deaths of black Americans at the hands of police. Um, we experienced a modern day lynching. Uh, Ahmaud Aubrey. Uh, the police barging in. To a house unannounced. Killing an unarmed black woman in her sleep. Breonna Taylor. Uh, the murder of someone in mental crisis. Sean Reed. And then another horrific incidence of state-sanctioned uh, violence in George Floyd. There's also the death of uh, a trans male, Tony McDade, I think his name is. And that was in Florida. And so all of that has produced this moment that we are experiencing, pardon me, of civil unrest. And I find this episode to be quite prophetic. I think Andre is a prophet for our times, a thought leader, a brilliant musician and creative. And my hope is that as you listen to this um that you find comfort in it as I did when we went back to do some editing and that you will find um, that it spurs your imagination that we step into a new way of thinking and being and doing that you find permission to be in this moment and that we work together to co-conspire and create a better tomorrow. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Welcome to Permission to Be. I am your co-host, Becca Epley, joined today by my fellow co-host, Tommy Allgood. Yo, yo, yo. Today, we are honored, really seriously, to have Andre Henry with us. Blessed, is- child, blessed. <laughs> As you can tell, we are already full on. <laughs> full on. Y'all, it's going to be fun today. <laughs> Seriously. Maybe put the kitties in a different room. Just saying. <laughs> Don't know where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> Andre, if you don't know him, he is a writer, a speaker. Well, he's so many things. A musician, um, 
for me personally, he has been a huge anti-racism educator and his work has spoken into my life. Um, I, Andre, came across your work for the first time when you were on the next question. Oh. Yeah, with Austin and Jenny um, and Chi-Chi. And so, everybody, we'd like to welcome Andre Henry. Thanks for yeah. having me. <laughs> So, Andre, sometimes we kick off the podcast uh, with just kind of like a fun question. And so mm-hmm. uh, I'm so curious how you're going to actually respond to this one. So when Hollywood comes to you, I don't know if you really want Hollywood, maybe somebody from <laughs> the Black Canadian. Hollywood. When Black Hollywood when Black Hollywood comes <laughs> to you, the real Hollywood, and asked to buy your life rights so they can make a biopic of your life. Mm-hmm. Who or whom do you want to play you or do you want to play yourself? Huh. That is a good question. How long is it? Wait, is this like my whole life a bi- biopic? Ooh, are we going to break it up in stages? Because, you know, you can't have you I can't mean, have I the can't child. I can't young, Andre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could we got try. stages. I could, I could get on my knees and just tie my shoes around my knees and play young Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there like a Nickelodeon show? Wienerville. That's what I'm thinking of. Wait, how old is that? It is old. <laughs> yeah. It is quite old. Oh, Y'all yeah. remember Wienerville? <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of like, I remember Vaguely. Rocco's Modern Life. I remember yes. like, like all that. Like that's the Nickelodeon era that I grew up in. It's just one of those days for me because earlier Fraggle Rock was trending on Twitter. And I said to my <laughs> roommate, why is Fraggle Rock trending? And he was like, what? And I was like, the Fraggles, you know? He's like, wait, what show is it on? On Fraggle Rock. Oh. Okay. Oh. <laughs> anyway, we've already digressed. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who I would I don't know who I would have play me. I know that so I know that some people have, you know, they just automatically think of Michael B. Jordan because of my hair. Oh, he's also I a mean, very good actor though so i mean i would totally be fine with him playing me yeah um, you're good looking he's good looking it's just a match you. made in heaven Duh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you i don't know who would play young andre though because i don't really know many child actors what's the guy on um blackish the guy who plays the older son on blackish oh he i could, don't know his true name he could yeah. be he could be young andre I don't okay. know his name, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but you can still have the job. Y'all will come to find out in my older years, I had I don't watch as much TV as I used to. So <laughs> I, when it comes to names, I'm like, um, okay. I watch a surprising amount of TV for someone who reads and works as much as I do. I don't think that people, under, like, when I tell people how many shows I'm trying to keep up with, they're like, when? And I'm like, in the middle of the night, mind your business. <laughs> 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 Keeping your lane, stay in your lane. <laughs> if, if y'all couldn't tell by that that answer, has anybody ever answered that broken up into life sections, Becca? Yeah, we st- well, we kind of kicked it off that way because so the first podcast ever was David and I, our other co-host. So I answered that question, and like I had Mandy Moore for one part, and then the mom from Father. 
or from Father of the Bride, and another part. What's her name? Diana Ke- Keaton. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like, I, yeah, I broke it up. I can't remember who the little girl was. So we broke it up into <laughs> lots of parts. Yeah. Okay. I was going to attribute it. I was like, look at Andre being an Enneagram four. But I mean, I technically still could because like us twos go to four in integration. So that's very true. (laughs) Well, we talked Mm -hmm. about this, but for some reason, I remembered that Tommy's a two. So you're both twos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Nice. However, my husband (laughs) keeps having me take the test over and over again because he's sure I'm an eight. Um, (laughs) But I was like, no, the childhood doesn't line up. Childhood trauma goes with the two. And yeah, ultimately, so, yeah. only only you know, like it's oh, like, yeah, only yeah. You, only you know. Oh yeah, but even like I love even when we talk about integration, disintegration, um, and I know that people are trying to like move away from that language, but I yeah. think for us twos, and just because until we come up with something better, uh, for us twos, as we're moving into that eight, I find that to be a strength point, especially if. I'm feeling pressed or 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 like my voice mm-hmm. is being stifled and yeah. sort of tapping into that energy it helps me mm-hmm. to like assert myself and to say hey yes. I have needs. Mm-hmm. Um and so I don't necessarily look at that as a bad thing or a negative thing. I think it's necessary for us to to embody wholeness. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mama bear comes out. <laughs> get out of my way. And that's not bad. Yeah. 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 Normally it's uh it's it's the passionate, it's the justice piece. Mm. It's interesting that we went here and started talking about Enneagram stuff. And the thing that's adjacent to that in my mind is um right before this I was listening to your Twitter live feed. Okay. And you were talking about you've been doing sort of this series on Twitter mm-hmm. about creating change and yes. that you want to see in the world. Yes. Um, and thinking about permission to be and mm-hmm. stepping into that authenticity, mm-hmm. I think for us to create change in the world, it requires uh, authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that as fours, I think fours on the Enneagram particularly embody that well. I was reading this the other day. It says that force possess the capacity to endure incredibly soul uh, soul killing difficulty and trauma beyond comprehension and arise from it as deeply loving, sensitive, and kind. And so when I think about mm-hmm. your work and how you're showing up and creating change in the world, I've, it's like, I'm like, I hope you feel seen is hearing that. <laughs> I'm like, that is like, yes, that's Andre. But I'm like, does Andre see Andre like that? <laughs> I mean, when, when you frame it that way, I could, I could see why you would say that in the sense of like, you know, what we're talking about. And I, I don't think that this is unique to me as far as talking about the struggle that we're in, right? Like, obviously it's not like we as, as Black people are living in a world that was largely just not just not made for us, but like built on top of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to, to approach that kind of work with, with hope, you know, to approach the work of confronting that world, telling the truth about that world to, dismantle and replace that world 
with an eye toward hope, I, I don't think that I realized how uh, how different that was until someone mentioned it to me because he was like, uh, actually, my 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 literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and i i didn't i never really thought about i never really thought about that in that way you know so i appreciate that i appreciate that i take that as a compliment for sure absolutely absolutely that's that's how i i i mean it um and there's there not only that but it's artful like there's there's art in everything that you do um and i feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail us mm-hmm. and so is you know we can do all the education in the world we can be well read but it is how we create and how we present that in the art that I feel like has always been our strong suit as as black people um, mm-hmm. and how we have found strength to to have hope to have courage to persevere um, in in dreaming and holding that hope of of living in a society that is anti-racist so yeah i know yesterday when you did your live feed in this series and it was your second one you talked about hope coming from memory while striving to do anti-racism work you talk a little bit more about that well yeah i mean so this is tied to my story and in late 2016 one of my neighbors was killed by the police he was a mentally ill uh, man he had eight children and a girlfriend and the story goes from the neighborhood that he called the police for help because he was having a mental health breakdown. And um, the police say that they got two calls from that area, one from someone who hung up and didn't say anything, and then one from the family. Uh, So what I put together is that he probably called first and then his family called after because he was having this break. But anyway, the police show up on the scene, they tase him, they bind him, they beat him to death. And... um, in response to that, I ended up gathering some folks in Pasadena, where I was living at the time, Pasadena, California, and we decided that we would build a memorial to his life, J.R. Thomas, to his life at the doors of the police station. And we understood that if we did that, then the police would take it down. So mm-hmm. we set up a system to where we would build a recurring memorial. So we'd, we'd set it up and someone would, the police would take it down. And by the end of the day, there would be a new memorial to his life um, there at the end of by the end of the day and that space ended up turning into like a gathering space for all kinds of people like around the san gabriel valley mm-hmm. i guess you could say the la area because there were folks coming from la proper to pasadena to meet at this memorial and to pray and to talk about justice and to receive encouragement and all this kind of stuff and obviously to campaign for police accountability yeah well um one day, uh, a young man named Jordan Davis was shot in the head by the police in, in the area, and we knew people that were close to him. And I remember around that time really dealing with uh, hope. And I did not feel like I could be a hopeful person because, first off, like uh, like Tommy mentioned, that my Enneagram style—I like that language for Enneagram—is uh, is four. Mm-hmm. Yes, Enneagram, and um, 
So, and we tend to be a bit more melancholy. And I find, or I used to find, <laughs> I used to find folks who are just like kind of chipper and all the time stuff like that. Like, first off, I didn't believe them usually. And secondly, mm-hmm. I found it off-putting. And the notion of being hopeful had always struck me as people just saying things that were going to be okay mm-hmm. or that things were going to turn out fine or looking on the bright side and stuff without actually like, reasons like there was no reason why they felt like everything was going to be okay they just said it was and i'm like well i can't just go around repeating that because that's what people need to believe or that's what people Mm -hmm. say you know and a friend of mine paul paul corrigan he's a he's a literature professor (laughs) i had trouble pronouncing that for a second he's a literature professor he sent me a book by rebecca solnit called hope in the dark And that changed my perspective about hope in general. And I'll never forget, there's one quote in the book where she talks about how hope is different from optimism or pessimism. Because she said that optimists say that no matter what happens, everything's going to be fine. (laughs) And pessimists do that in the opposite direction. No matter what happens, everything's going to turn out shitty, right? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And the problem in both of those perspectives is the certainty of it, you know, but that Mm -hmm. hope dwells in the uncertainty. You know, mm. hope is about the possibility and stuff like that. And that started changing my idea about hope and saying, no, hope is hope is not just this internal disposition, but that it is an openness to the possibilities for the future. Where does that where does that openness to the possibilities of the future come from, though? And I think the work of Walter Brueggemann is helpful here, uh, Old Testament theologian and I think it was Douglas Adam who wrote, uh, he wrote a book about hope. He, uh, Douglas Adam did the Nestle boycott that changed the way that they advertised baby food and stuff like that or baby formula. And through like reading these things and thinking about them, I came to a new understanding of hope that says like, we can be open to possibilities about the future because of what we know about the past. You know, we learn by analogy, right? So if we say that racial justice is it or it's possible racial progress is possible in america mm-hmm. what what grounds do we have to say that well we we have the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s we have the civil rights act of 1877 i think it is we have the the emancipation proclamation we can look back at all these instances and say through people organizing or fighting for for certain chi- type of change in the world or you know and i could go on and on and on these things make make us look back and say, well, ordinary people have accomplished these kinds of things before. So there's a chance, again, not being too, not not dwelling in certainty, but there's a chance that if we were to do the same kind of thing, mm-hmm. then we might be able to do the same kind of thing. And so that's that's where that idea of hope coming from memory mm-hmm. came in from. Mm. It's interesting because when you say that, I think about the church, mm-hmm. or specifically the white church. That dwells in certainty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the hope that I was taught to believe has a completely different definition. Yeah. What are you thinking of? Well, the hope is all wrapped up into our hope is that we're going to die and go to heaven. Yeah. And everything else is pointless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, not everything else is pointless. We got to save everybody so they can go. And let's be real, church. We got to save the white people. And so we're going to go to heaven. Yeah. No, I think that um, as I thought about my relationship with evangelicalism, that 
the more that I talked with white evangelicals in particular, when I first got started really talking about racial justice, white evangelical theology, even though they present that as hope, it started sounding very pessimistic to me. Yes. Because why is it that the best that God can offer you is death? Mm. Like physical death, mm. you know? Yes. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you that the best thing that you could hope for is that you will die and go to heaven? So this is going to be the basis of the horror movie that I'm going to write about white evangelicalism. <laughs> I, I don't, go fund me. We're, we're there. I usually don't <laughs> talk about this in public. So if somebody does this because I talked about it, then we can say, well, you have to prove that you had this idea before April 8th, 2020. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We got you. Around this time, when I was talking about this stuff, I was thinking about a very popular worship song at the time called Oceans. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, I ain't ready for this. I'm ready and I ain't ready. All in one. Here we go. I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, something like I like this song, but there's no way that there's no way that with a white evangelical theological frame on this song that the narrator makes it out of this song alive. The narrator has to die in order for it to be consistent with evangelical theology, because the evangelicals tell me that God, God's highest good, God's ultimate purpose is to get Mm -hmm. souls into heaven. And the way to get those souls into heaven is for those people to die and to be released from their bodies. Mm -hmm. Therefore, like, Therefore, if God wants your soul so that you can be in heaven with him forever, God is a him in evangelical theology. Um, of course, not a black woman. No. Right. <laughs> um, <so laughs> that's where I'm at. If God wants your soul, then it makes sense that if God sees you in danger, that God would not save you because mm-hmm. if God saves you, God doesn't get your soul, right? So by mm-hmm. that logic, God should, God should just kill you himself. So I'm like, in the song Oceans, Jesus calls you out on the water to drown you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I told you I wasn't ready. (laughs) Jesus Jesus calls you, call me out upon the water. And it actually kind of works. Like, if you think like the narrator actually doesn't make it out of this song alive, the lyrics still kind of work. So that's going to be the basis of my horror film where Jesus is a serial killer uh, to show people that white evangelical theology is a horror story. Keep thinking of Jesus calling people out on the water and it's like whack-a-mole. I keep, <laughs> I keep telling people, you better, not ch- you better not trust white Jesus. If white Jesus just shows up one day and is like, hey, come join me out on the water, you better run. Because he's, nope. he's not. No. Nope. <laughs> no. Nope. You won't be colonizing me today, Jesus. <laughs> I do want to make that movie or someone told me that it should be a TV series. So I, I mean, I do want to make it. These are, this is one of the projects and this is what you're saying, like talking about art and creativity is like, I do think in, I mean, I'm primarily an artist. That's, that is, that's my, that's my role. That's how I work. And that is one of the bigger projects that I actually do want to do. I don't know anything (laughs) about producing television or movies or anything like that, but the message. So if you're, (laughs) If you're listening to the podcast and you're a producer, Andre's looking for you. <laughs> so within all of that, 
you mentioned roles and like your primary role being sort of this this occupying this space as an artist Mm -hmm. and I get the very fortunate privilege here in Charlotte to serve on this board called the Possibility Project. So so much of of the concepts that we're talking about today are sort of interwoven into the ethos of this organization. And its focus is on creating generations of leaders um, and through the lens of anti-racism. And going back to what you were talking about earlier today, you gave this tool on your feed yeah. about examining the world or, or it was about creating like change, I think. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Nakia, she's the director of this board, a phenomenal black woman, Nakia Lee. Um, she has this one exercise called Two Worlds. Mm. And um, everything that we do is rooted in possibility. Like, yeah. you know, there's nothing that's just like a strict no or anything. It's like, well, how can that happen? And mm-hmm. sort of expanding and opening your mind um, instead of sort of fitting into this mold or this narrative that is very common in white supremacy culture. But it talks about the world as it is and the world as it should be or could be. Mm-hmm. Um, with the engines of like the world as it is being the engine being people, yeah. but the the way that that is is they try to consolidate and hold on to power. Mm. And so, in talking about sort of the changes that you wanted to make, or, or in in dreaming of these changes rather, because it was sort of this process of like dreaming the world mm-hmm. up. Can you talk more about the importance? of entering that space in anti-racism work and creating social change, social movement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, so the thing that I shared on Twitter earlier today was a a table. And I actually screenshotted it from a course that I took in leading nonviolent movements at Harvard with um, Serge Popovich, Slobodan Dinovich, and Douglas Adam, who the... The two Serbian names are the guys who um, they led the movement that took down the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic in like the year 2000, like 99, 2000, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And they helped with the, that whole exercise, that assignment was to help to get a bit more concrete about what kind of world you want to build. Mm-hmm. Now, we, a lot of us that, you know, believe in freedom or that are committed to anti-racism, we're very good about articulating what we're against, what we don't like, Mm -hmm. but we're not as clear about what kind of world we actually want to have and want to build. What do we want to replace Mm -hmm. these systems of harm with, you know? And um, this is important because without, without a vision, we don't know how to plan. We don't know how to act. We don't know what t- what the targets are. We don't, we, we don't know where we're going. And you mentioned about being an artist in that and a role of an artist in that in that place. I think that we're really just talking about imagination, you know. And this is something that I think. So for many people, we don't identify as political because we look at the political as this very serious arena that is not about creativity and not about imagination and all that kind of thing, Uh, which is unfortunate because that keeps a lot of us out of the political process. The truth of the matter is though, that in pursuing a new world, there's, this is a creative endeavor. It's an artistic endeavor to dream up what the world could be 
is for everyone to reclaim that that childlike kind of uh, mm-hmm. artistry that we all had at one point. Like everyone has a former, everyone has like a former career as a princess or a ninja or a cowboy or something like that. You know, because when we were young, you know, that's who we were. That's what we did. You know. And we still need to access that and, and actually to create this very serious reality of a world that has equity and that is just for for everyone, right? And so this this exercise, and there I'm sure that there are many, you know, there, there are many organizing tools to help us get there is just literally saying, okay, what what is the world that you want? What does it look like? You know? Um, and to think specifically, what how would human rights be handled differently? in the America or the, or the Paris or the, you know, the Johannesburg that, that you desire, you know, mm-hmm. how would the economy be different? How would criminal justice be handled differently? How would the transparency and rule of law be different? And to literally talk to people, imagine together, dream together, write it down and understanding that this is another artistic, you know, mode of doing that is that this is going to take some improvisation. This is going to take some experimentation. You're going to try things. Some things are going to work. Some things are not going to work, you know, and you're going to go back to the drawing board and you're going to keep dreaming. This is the work that has to happen because without it, we will never be able to change the world because literally people keep on doing the same rituals, performing the same rituals and habits of the status quo because they literally cannot imagine anything else. How many people do you talk to about prisons and say, prisons do not do the things that we are told that they do. They are a place of trauma. They are a place where people's human human rights are violated and they do not rehabilitate people. They do not make people ready to re-enter society. People come out of incarceration worse than they went in, right? We know Mm -hmm. these things. These are what the these are what experts who deal with these things every day are telling us. But when you say to someone we should stop incarcerating people, what's the first thing that they're going to say? Well, what are we going to do? What else are mm-hmm. we going to do with criminals? This is a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why we have to do this work of dreaming, of envisioning, of improvisation. Mm, that is sobering. That is so sobering. <laughs> My God. <laughs> like, it is a failure of imagination. Like, <laughs> it. when you say that, it, it brings to into my mind this question, though, of isn't our society sort of structured, though, to prevent us from entering that space of imagination? It's just sort of that we, we're so busy. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like so... And I'm like... Even though that like experiencing COVID nineteen right now it is terrible. Um, yeah. Being a nurse on the front lines and and my heart goes out to people who are not. We will as a society we will never be the same after this. And then there's people on a personal level who are transformed and will never yeah be the same after this. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I look at all the things that we were able to implement in a matter of like two weeks, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of depressing. <laughs> it's kind of depressing because, and then when I, I was a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren supporter, mm-hmm. I remember, and I'll probably get in trouble for this and that is okay. <laughs> but I remember sort of looking at older black people and having this question um, and not judgment, but a question of like, why, why are we supporting Joe Biden in this day and age, in this time? Yeah. 
and you had mentioned some thoughts about that. Like you're, you have concerns about that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So like what, what in that space do you find, do you feel like because as a people we're so run down or, or we're just so used to sort of the status quo as a black people, I don't want to say that it's a failure of imagination because I think that we continue to reinvent, reinvent ourselves mm-hmm. and, and to imagine beautiful things. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to keep hope when the same we keep selecting the same people and candidates <laughs> and systems. Yeah, I mean, what I will say is that when I talk to black people about what kind of futures we can have. Now, this is not representative of all black people, obviously. Like, you know, my mm-hmm. social circle is limited. You know, it is. You don't know all black people. No. <laughs> no. I know people think that we meet like every Wednesday at three fifteen to discuss like the black agenda and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> to create new, to create new social dances and whatnot, but we don't. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um it's the great conspiracy <laughs> when i talk to black people about what our prospects are for futures i find that many black people not activist black people because you got to remember like a lot of black americans are not activist types you know amen like many many black americans that i speak to cannot imagine us ever living in a world without white supremacy, without race oppression, without anti-black violence, systemic anti-black violence and all that kind of stuff. That's not a criticism. That's just a reality, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's valid that a lot of, a lot of black people can't imagine that because anti-blackness is like everywhere. It's being expressed through every single social institution that we have. Even some of the black social institutions that we have, Mm -hmm. You know, we have black individuals that that are, you know, caught up in whiteness and in anti-blackness themselves. So I get that. Now, at the same time, I feel that in general, as Americans, we our imaginations are not nourished on those things that would cause us to mobilize and to organize for freedom to begin with. You know, why is it that when I first heard about the the social view of power in society, which is basically this, right? If we think that power is something that like, it's a possession, it's an object, and only certain people have access to this object, right? right? Like, you know, the president has the power, the congressperson has the power, the, the senior pastor has the power, the CEO has the power. You know, and we have to wrest the power from their hand. The social view of power is different. It says that power resides with the people that are being governed or ruled or whatever, right? Or employed or whatever. Um, without the cooperation of those who are being ruled, the ruler doesn't, the ruler can't get anything done. You know, oh, we're going to preach you know, right now. Gene Sharp. <laughs> Gene Sharp writes about this and he says, you know, uh, obedience is at the heart of political power. Yes. Uh, by themselves, rulers can't direct traffic and fix roads and milk goats and deliver the mail and collect taxes and all this kind of stuff. They depend on all of us to provide those services. And if we were to stop doing those things, then they can't rule in that way. And that's the exact logic that is behind every successful, you know, uh, action in the civil rights movement is that people said, oh, no, we're not going to ride that bus. We're going to boycott. That's why a strike works, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. Okay, why is it that when I when I give that lesson to people, there's like this aha moment for so many of us. So many of us go, oh, right, yeah, you're right. We hadn't even considered that. I hadn't really thought about it in that way until I heard, mm-hmm. I read about it as an adult. Now we're supposed to be America. We're supposed to be the people who our our mythology, our legends are about like these folks who got on got on that boat in the middle of the night in Boston Harbor and threw all that tea into Boston Harbor saying, well, you know, <laughs> if you're not going to let us be represented in parliament, then, you know, keep your tea, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. That's who we're supposed to be. Revolution is supposed to be in our bones. It's supposed to be, th- be the thing that we're nourished on, but we're not nourished on that. We don't have a resistance culture yeah. in this country. And that's partly because we are not told those, we are not, that that resistance culture, that revolutionary instinct and imagination is not nourished really in our educational system. It's not really nourished in the media that we consume. Like how are protests represented on the news and in the media? They're represented as pointless or counterproductive or destructive. Mm-hmm. When we watch movies like Black Panther, like the only revolutionary voice is killed at the end, um, you know, Kill Killmonger, and they had to make him a misogynist at the same time. Like he couldn't have been someone who had like some good ideas about Wakanda sharing its wealth and resources, yeah. and they do some restorative justice on him. So my my thing is that I don't, I just don't feel like our imagination is nourished in that way, so that we would have an informed populace an empowered populace, people that understand how political power works, that it resides with us, and people that can actually do something. When you read what the president, former presidents have said, like Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy have said about revolution, you know, John F. Kennedy said, those who make peaceful revolutions impossible make violent revolutions inevitable. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, what he said to the slaves, the enslaved people when they were freed, he said, if these people don't respect your freedom, you rise up in arms against them. Okay, now I'm not calling for anybody to pick up their guns and go shoot nobody. All I'm saying is that our, our imagination is not nourished in that way. Um, and I think that that's a huge problem. I think that's partly why we don't move. I don't think that when I say that it's a failure of imagination, it's not a criticism on us. It's just a reality that the things that I was, this is what I was saying, that when I talk to black people, the thing that we imagine is us losing. That's what I hear when I talk to so many black Americans. We imagine that if we fight, we'll lose because we don't know that there was a massive study all over the world of conflict situations from different countries 323 conflict situations were assessed and analyzed and most of and it, most of and many of them nonviolent some of them armed and what they found was that 25% of the time if you pick up the gun you might win but 50% of the time if you fight nonviolently you have a greater chance of winning you have twice you're twice as likely to win if you fight nonviolently the other thing that they found was that no regime could withstand the sustained resistance of 3 and a half percent of the population mm-hmm. now black people in america make up 13% of the population we have several times as many people that we need with just black people in the country mm-hmm. but we don't know And our imagination is based on not just memory, but also knowledge. If you've ever played that game where someone says, I want you to draw an alien, but it has to look like nothing you've ever seen before. Everybody inevitably draws a blob. Yep. (laughs) 
And even that, it's something like what you've seen before. And the whole point of that exercise is that you can't you can't draw something that looks like you can't imagine something that looks unlike anything that you've ever seen before. That's not how it works. Like when I'm making music and people are like, well, you got to make something I haven't heard before. It's not possible. There are 12 keys <laughs> that you can do with a major or minor, <laughs> you know, like, but my influences are going to come out in my music. It's going to sound something like Bob Marley. It's going to sound something like, you know, James Blake. It's going to sound something mm-hmm. like Jack Garrett because that's how it works with creativity. So what I'm saying is that about imagination, I know I've been going on and on and on. Oh, no, you blessing me. But our imagination, as much as it's best based on memory, is also based on knowledge. We have to. So the, the reason why we can't imagine ourselves winning is because we don't have this information. The other thing that we don't seem to know, and this isn't just black people, this is just across the board. And, you know, this is what I study. Like, I mean, I I mostly just read all the time about social change mm-hmm. and social transformation. So I hear people say things all the time about social change and social transformation that just not going to work. It's just mm-hmm. not going to work. And one of those things that I hear often is people talk about people talk about social change. They talk about revolution as though it has to be incremental and individual. Mm-hmm. So, Ugh. So I was talking to a good friend the other day and, you know, they were saying we were talking about uh, we were talking. I think we were talking about racism, but they compared it to the cause that they care about. And they were like, you know, you know, people in their in their own time will come to realize the truth and then they'll make the decision that's right for them. Maybe they're not ready yet. And I'm like, y'all, we do not have time no. for that. We don't have time to pursue change in that way. The truth is that every time we have had real progress is when oppressed people have organized and led uh, led a movement to disrupt the status quo and to impress their demands onto the majority of onto the dominant society. Revolution is not going to happen incrementally. That's not how no. that works. Well, while we're inching along, we're giving the we're giving those who believe in oppression, we're giving their t- them time to regroup and to do whatever it is that they want to do. And it doesn't happen individually. One person who decides that they're not going to go to work today because the boss is a narcissist and an abuser has doesn't have much of an effect on the company, and the company j- can just say you're fired. But if thirteen people on a 20 person staff say, Hey, we're not coming to work until you change these policies. That's people power. Mm -hmm. And we don't know it. It's not common knowledge. And this is, this goes back to the imagination that I'm going to stop going on this rant. Um, Please don't. This goes back to the imagination (laughs) is that we don't, we don't know these things and the information is actually kept from us. It's a form of repression. Yes. There are all kinds of uprisings happen, happening all over the world and have been for uh, years now. They're not reported. You know where I see them? Twitter. But not CNN, not yep. MSNBC, not Fox News. You know? yeah. Every other day I saw my friend Joshua Potash posting like massive uprisings all over the world and i'm like we don't even know about it no you know it's a form of repression that it's not reported in the news when it is reported in the news it's reported as something bad or useless when it's when it's presented in movies it's look at what they do with game of thrones (laughs) daenerys targaryen 
spent most of that series as a freedom fighter and a liberator. Okay, now she did kill some people along the way. Like, <laughs> but, but everybody else was killing people. You know what I'm saying? Like within that world, like within that world, there was no Martin Luther King Jr. Everybody was doing things through, through the means of, and the logic of that world. But all of a sudden, like two episodes from the end, the person who was liberating all these people is now a dictator. So we keep rehearsing this pessimism in our media that says that even the people who are trying to do something good, who want to change the world are actually, it's Animal Farm, you know? (laughs) And so we have to do something else to nourish our imagination. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at beccaepley.com.